The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. All right, would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Again, we thank you for our, our, our kiddos, for, um, for your word that's been memorized, for, for just two really, really significant verses that, uh, that they know well. And God, we do again pray that those truths would just sink deeply into their souls. God, as we, in these next several moments, come and open your word, God, I pray that you would, uh, that you would come and help us to understand it. God, that you would that you'd make sense of what it is that you've written. And God, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would come and meet with us in such a special way that there that there would, be, there would be a difference in us as we walk out of this place than how we came in. And so God, where you need to, where you need to convict and, and cut, I, I pray and ask that you would come and do that. God, where you need to heal and encourage, I ask that you would do that as well. Lord, you and you alone are, are able to take your word and, and, and apply it into the hearts and soul and minds of, of every single one of us in this room. And God, I ask that you would do that. And I ask that you would guard my words, that they would be accurate to your word, that they would be clear, that they would make sense. And that we may be able to understand what it is that you have said. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them and go to Titus 3. We're going to be, we're going to be closing down our series in Titus. And I'll just be honest with you from the get-go, we may not even get past verse 8 this morning. Um, And so if that happens, uh, I I plan to put together a little Facebook video that kind of gives you the rest of what we may just not have time for this morning. The reason being is, is really outside of what Kevin walked us through last week. And 
he did a phenomenal job. Outside of what he walked us through last week, which is the gospel, which is salvation, are you enslaved or have you been freed and made a son? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Outside of that, what we will look at this morning is perhaps the second most significant aspect of teaching the New Testament has. Because it is going to deal with how you and I live. How we live as believers. What do we do? What characterizes us? And in many ways, this is just a summary of what this entire book has been. Because from the beginning in Titus, we have been summarizing the big idea that Paul has been writing to Titus as he has the task and responsibility of appointing elders and setting into order the things in these churches that should be is that beliefs determine action, and actions demonstrate beliefs. And at the heart of what we will look at this morning is where beliefs and actions intersect. It's the heart of how you and I will live as believers. And whereas last week was really a a, a very specific explanation of the gospel, this week is a very specific explanation explanation of why we would devote ourselves to what Paul refers to several times as good works. Now perhaps it will be helpful for us to summarize what is meant by good works. I think probably the easiest way to define good works would just be simply use the word obedience. It, it, it would be, it'd be saying yes to the things that the scripture tells you say yes to and saying no to the things that the scriptures tell you to say no to. Now those are things that before we were freed, and before we became sons and daughters, we were powerless to have any control over. As believers, by the power and equipping of the Holy Spirit, we can say yes to obedience. We can say no to disobedience, and we are told that we are to devote ourselves to good works. Not works to merit salvation, but works because we have been saved. And this is a theme that just runs throughout all of Titus. So let's consider briefly works in Titus. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 1, In verse 1 of chapter 2, I would submit that, quote-unquote, works are implied by the context. You have in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul is walking Titus through. He's reminding him of his life mission. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. So there should be holy living that accords with with what they understand and the faith that they have. The same type of phrase is uttered in chapter 2, verse 1. But you can see there in verse 16 of chapter 1. False teachers deny God by their works. Again, actions demonstrate beliefs. And beliefs, or excuse me, beliefs determine actions. Actions demonstrate beliefs. Paul was able to look at the actions of these false teachers and say, it doesn't matter what they say, their actions deny the fact that they are believers. False teachers are unfit for any good work. 
In verse 7 of chapter 2, Titus is to be a model of good works. Verse 14, Christ has redeemed a people for himself who are to be zealous for good works. That word zealous means out of your mind, excited and passionate for. That word was used to describe people who wanted to overthrow the government and would would whip out knives and shank soldiers to just take one out if they had the opportunity. That's what the word zealous is in reference to. It's not that you as a believer start shanking people. It's that you're that crazy excited about good works that you will do whatever it takes to do that. In chapter 3, we get to the Cretans were to be ready for every good work. We're told in verse 5 of chapter 3 that we're not saved because of works. Verse 8, we're to devote ourselves to good works. Verse 14, we're to learn to devote ourselves to good works. You can't read the book of Titus and conclude anything other than Paul has in his focus that these liars, these evil beasts, and these lazy gluttons may indeed have salvation in Christ and begin to live lives that demonstrate it. This is a pervasive theme throughout this entire book. If you'd like to write in your Bible, I would just suggest that you write or highlight or circle every one of those word works. You'll be able to see it then in color if you use a a, a yellow or orange highlighter of just how it jumps off and is everywhere. But as we get into verse 8 this morning, Paul is going to begin really his, his summary as he's walking towards and writing towards the end of this Letter And he writes this in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now before we go any farther, let's consider verse 8, and as I told you, I I don't anticipate us to really get past verse 8 this morning, but we begin with, the saying is trustworthy. What saying is that? You have a trustworthy saying having been said. What saying is that? Well, that's everything that Kevin walked us through last week. The trustworthy saying is the summary of the gospel that Kevin walked us through in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 3. You have it there at the top of your screen. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's this trustworthy saying. That's what is to be insisted upon. And so just by way of reminder, let's consider again this trustworthy saying. 
some of the highlights of verses 4 to 7 is that God saved us. The action expressed in that phrase shows that God has done something. It was not you or I that did anything. It was God who has done something. Namely, he has saved. Paul continues, and this was not because of works done by us in righteousness. So this salvation that we have received, this salvation, this action that has been done to us, is not even because of us. So do you see where we're at so far? Something has happened to you, and you've had nothing to do with it. You have been saved, and it's not because of you. It is because and according to his own mercy. It's not because of your works, but according to his own mercy. And then you have the word, so that. Separating off a purpose clause. Why has this been done? Why? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Kevin used the word sonship. It's a beautiful word to describe this. It speaks to the adoption that we have as believers where we become the children of God. We become His sons and daughters. And so that being justified, and that word is crucial for us because it means, again, that God has has declared now something about you. That word's written in a passive way which just simply describes, again, that you have been acted upon. And haven't done anything in and of yourself. But the word justified means that something has been declared true of you because God said it would be true. And we understand that to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because God's standard has always been and will ever be perfection. And that poses a major problem for us. Because you and I are not perfect. And so Jesus Christ came and he not only died the death that we should have died and paid our penalty, but he lived the life that we are incapable of living. And so Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins And he has lived the life we were incapable of living. And as a result of that, God credits all of the obedience of Christ to us. That's this word justification. So that being justified, so that having all of the obedience of Jesus now tallied on your account. You Think about the scales of justice. All of Christ's obedience placed on one side. So that being justified, we might become heirs. So this trustworthy saying is everything that he's just walked through in verses 4 to 7. We could summarize in two short words, verses 4 to 7, and just say it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's that Jesus Christ came. And it's by grace that you have been saved. It's because of the obedience of Christ that God is able to justify sinners. 
without compromising his holiness and his perfection. So this is what Paul says is a trustworthy saying. The gospel is a trustworthy saying. And he wants Titus to insist on these things. This word insist means to affirm confidently or affirm emphatically. It has the idea here of this is to be characteristic of your teaching, Titus. This is to be characteristic of your life and your ministry. And again, we see the words so that, which begin to separate out for us a purpose clause. Notice there with me then, and I want you to insist on these things so that, or for the purpose of, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Let me just paraphrase this for you. Your life is to have its focus on the gospel so emphatically that the result is you devote yourself to good works. And oftentimes we think of the gospel as something just for unbelievers. We think of the gospel as a message that gets presented to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and and we ask and invite them to place their faith and trust in the Lord. And that is certainly one aspect of the gospel. But notice here the trustworthy saying, the gospel that Paul is reminding Titus of is for those who have believed. So that those who have believed, so that those who are Christians may be careful to devote themselves to good works. May be careful to devote themselves to obedience. May be careful to devote themselves to say no to disobedience. Men and women, we, we as believers, we never move beyond the gospel. And you see here in verses 4 to 7, in the beginning of verse 8, where Paul is saying, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. The gospel is trustworthy. You need to insist on the gospel because the chief motivation for obedience, the chief motivation in life to live and, and, and do good works and be devoted to good works is the very gospel. We don't move past this. It's not just for unbelievers. It is for believers as well and this is so critically important because nearly everything else in life is not necessarily against the gospel but is not grace or gospel based it is law based so my kids or allegra takes a spelling test she gets a word wrong she loses a point that's not gospel that's law And those things have their place. If you want a a raise or a promotion at work, you you don't slack off and show up late and not work hard and just expect your boss to go, well, here's some grace. I mean, that would be 
great if it happened and if your boss is a gracious man. But, but by and large, the, the way to get a raise at work and the way to maybe get that promotion you're going for is to, to work hard, to show up early, to maybe do a little bit more than is expected, to take on responsibility that you've not been asked to do, to show yourself as a dependable employee. None of that is grace. It's all law. It's all law. And you wouldn't want Danny or I, having gone to Bible school, failing every class but still receiving a diploma. There's a measure of confidence and trust you've placed in Grace Theological Seminary for me, Lancaster Bible College for Danny, that that sees, you haven't looked at our transcripts, You see the diploma, you have a measure of confidence in those institutions, you know that they're just not flaky places, they're not internet colleges, you can just pay a a fee and get a certificate from. That's not grace, it's law. Heck, my my dating of Carrie wasn't grace-based. It was law, and I would submit all of your dating relationships were that way too. Now, that changes drastically when you get married and all of that stuff shifts and the gears grind a little bit because you move from, from grace to law because of now the covenant you've pledged. But if I was just a bonehead in our relationship, she has every right to dump me. And that's the point of dating, right? For her to discover whether or not I'm a bonehead. Now, if I'm a bonehead now that we're married, she's stuck. But when we were dating, that was the point of dating. And she may be a gracious person, but our dating relationship was far more characterized by law than it was grace. And those things are good. I mean, I don't want my daughters to grow up and just just look over every boneheaded mistake some boy they're interested in makes because at some point, those things are indicators of who he is and his character and all of the things that he believes. I want them to have a little bit of law. And so, grace is antithetical to nearly everything else that we believe in. And what can happen is that the law... And that whole mindset of thinking can very easily creep in because it's everything that we know. Because grace stands in opposition to virtually everything that we know. Husbands and wives, I mean, the idea of unconditional love is, is, is gospel and grace-based love. And it, it takes years to, to work that out. Because it's just different than everything that we know. And the same is true for you and I as we think about obedience, as we think about saying no to disobedience. It's that the gospel is so different. If we're not careful, we can err in one or two ways. One of these errors is that we can have good beliefs in bad actions. And what I mean by that, and I used this illustration a couple uh, weeks ago when we were talking about false teachers. What I mean by that is, is, and I I gave you the illustration of of socks around my house. And I won't tell you if this is true or not, to not incriminate the guilty, but let's just say that there are socks around my house. And they're just, you know, colorful, girly socks, and and Tucker's guilty as well, so he's got socks everywhere also. Uh, But... But a, a, a good belief 
and bad action regarding my desire as their father for them to pick up their socks is that dad loves us. I don't need to pick up my socks. And that's true, right? My love's not conditional uh, whether or not they pick up their socks. And so, so good beliefs and bad actions could lead my children to go, you know what, dad's love's not dependent on, on sock cleanup day. And so, you know what, let's just leave the socks out. It doesn't matter. Just let them, let them hang out, be all over the floor. There's one direction we can err. Second direction that we can err is good actions, but not bad, but bad beliefs. And this is just as devastating. Because this error will lead my children to go, got to pick up the socks because dad may not love us. Got to pick up the socks. Adelaide, make sure you pick up your socks or dad's not going to hug you goodnight. Dad's not going to tell you he loves you. And and, and what if Allegra sat down with the the little boy that we will bring back from China and said, you know, now here's the secret to dad loving you. You got to pick up your socks. And if he sees socks on the floor, he's not going to be happy and he's not going to love you and you can forget about that good night hug and that good night kiss and, and he's not going to pray with you because his love for you is dependent on whether or not you pick up your socks. So pick up your socks. Good actions, because I walk in and what, the floor is clean, right? There's no socks on the floor. But what if I discover that the motive for why the floor is clean is because they're worried about whether or not I'm going to hug them that night when they go to bed. See, good beliefs that, that my love is unconditional, yet coupled with bad actions, means that there's really no care about whether or not socks are on the floor. There's no care about obedience. There's no care about how disobedience may still be a part of my life, that I have these beliefs, but they don't demonstrate or they don't conform to these actions. And so, you know, we're just going to let the socks hang out. Because Dad loves us. We're good. He's told us. His love's unconditional for us. You know what? Just who cares if the socks are out? But just as devastating is the right behavior done for the wrong reasons. Got to pick up those socks. Because dad may not love us. Dad may not hug us. We may go to bed wondering and worrying tonight whether or not we feel secure. And the Cretans faced both of these challenges. And you and I face both of these challenges as well. Paul repeatedly walks the Cretans through and walks Titus on behalf or for the Cretans through. Hey, show yourself as a model of good works. Adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. Jesus Christ redeemed for himself a people zealous for good works. See, he's walking them through this idea that, that, they're, that, that they're his teaching accords with sound doctrine, that, that the, the good beliefs that they've been saved by would indeed lead to good actions. And the false teachers were there, 
And they were adding one more law-based thing on to another, saying, you know what? God, God's got, he doesn't really love you that much. He would love you more if you did this. He'd love you more if you picked up your socks and, and, and got them up off the floor. He would, he'd love you more if you, if you obeyed this part of his law. He'd love you more if you subscribed or ascribed to this teaching about the genealogies. And, and, and here is where and, and you have the Cretans being tempted in either one of these ways. Where they may believe in the gospel and they may go, you know what, I can still be a liar. I can still be an evil beast. I can still be a lazy glutton. It doesn't matter because God's love is unconditional. And the salvation I've received is not based on what I've done. So let's just let it go. Or they can just be trapped and chained and bound. I've got to do all this stuff so that God would love me. I've got to do all this stuff so that God would accept me. And both are devastating. And in verse 8, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. The gospel is trustworthy. And I want you to affirm emphatically the gospel so that those who have faith in Jesus Christ may be devoted to good works. That word devoted means to set their mind on. That those who have faith in Jesus Christ would go, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to pick up these socks. Not so that He would love me, but because He does. And I think in many ways, we're going to probably err on one or two sides of this, and we may even find ourselves just zigzagging back and forth between one and the other. But if you're on the side of good beliefs and bad actions, you need to hear these words from Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The idea that Paul is writing against here that was involved in a part of the Roman church was that if God's grace is greater than all of my sin, if He loves me in in spite of all the socks that are out, might as well just go buy more socks and put them all over the ground. Because if His grace was greater than that, then if I got more sin, doesn't that mean His grace is that much greater? And he goes, no, 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 no. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And so for those of you that, that, that see that obedience or believe that obedience really doesn't mean anything because God's love for you is unconditional, you have the right beliefs. And you have the wrong actions. But for those of you that are on the other side that maybe have all the right actions and you've got the wrong beliefs, you need to hear some words that Paul wrote to this same group of people. 
This is the bookends of chapter 8 in Romans. First verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe, He loves you in spite of your socks. And nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how many socks you have on the floor. And you may find yourself just consumed with, I gotta pick up the socks, I gotta make sure the socks are picked up, I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta do all of this good stuff so that God will love me. Or you find yourself faltering, which if we're honest, all of us do every day, and then you begin wondering, does God still love me? Because I messed up royally last week. Does God still love me? Is His grace still greater than that sin? Or am I, am I now under His judgment and His condemnation? And what happens? Am I still saved? Or did I lose my salvation? And what about all these socks that are around? And we just become consumed with trying to perform the right actions because we've got bad beliefs. And the antidote for both of these errors Paul tells us in Titus 3 verse 8 is the gospel. The saying is trustworthy. The gospel is trustworthy and it needs to be insisted upon. It needs to be emphatically and confidently affirmed so that you and I might set our minds on obeying the Lord not because it does anything to gain His love and affection. Because He's given us His love and affection. And so let's just, take, let's just take two church examples. If you're here this morning because you think God will love you more because you have come to church, you are erring on the good actions and bad beliefs side. And the antidote to that is the gospel. You need to understand that God's love for you is not dependent on your attendance here at church. Now the other side of that is, if you don't think church is at all important, and maybe this is the first time in a long time you've ever been here, you're erring on the other side of good beliefs and bad actions. And the gospel is the antidote for that. Church attendance averages in America, the average family, three out of eight Sundays. I feel like I walk such a fine line because I, I want nothing more than for you to be here. I want nothing more than for you to be in a CE class and have the opportunity to to have that fellowship and to encourage other believers and to be encouraged by other believers and to participate and and have our kids lead us and and be involved in the lifeblood of the church. But I can't for a second say, you know what? If you really want to be sure that your sins this week have been forgiven, you should probably come here on Sunday morning. So we got this special little prayer that we'll lead you through, and then you can know. Because if we go that route, we've lost the gospel. We've lost it. How about giving? Giving's a fun one, right? If you think that 
God will love you more because you put something in the plates that went past. You may have had the good actions and you got bad beliefs. Because His love for you is not dependent on anything that you give. Now that may lead some of you to go, oh, I could just let the socks hang out. I don't ever have to give. Because His love for me is not dependent on my giving and it just doesn't matter. And you know what? And, and no, you've got You've got the right beliefs and you've got actions that don't conform to that. In the New Testament, the, the, word, the word tithe is never used as a command to describe giving. 10% is never given as a rule of thumb in the New Testament for giving. The word generosity is what's used in regards to giving in the New Testament. Now, I think 10% is a good rule and a standard, and it's a standard in my household, and there's good reasons for that that we just won't get into this morning. But if you find yourself just curious, like, where do I start? That can be a starting point for you. But all of the major sections of giving, I still have a sock in my hand, all of the major sections of giving in the New Testament all speak of giving in regards to generosity. Christ has been generous with you. You go be generous back to him. You've been praying for that job promotion. You've been praying for that answer for a job that you have. You, you know what? He's been generous in providing for those needs. You be generous in response. It's the generosity in response to the gospel as an overflow of the gospel that characterizes New Testament giving. And so a real easy test for you is to ask yourself the question, is my giving generous? As I look at what I make and I look at what I give and perhaps I look at what I spend on other things, does generosity characterize my giving? If it doesn't, you have perhaps the right beliefs and the wrong actions. But if you find yourself giving because you wonder if God's not blessed you enough yet. I'm going to put a seed gift in. And there's, there's wealthy denominations that make that the central focus of their Sunday mornings. Come put your seed gift at the altar and we'll bless it and you can go home a hundredfold richer. And it's garbage. Because you've lost the gospel. And it's no secret that the, the church needs funds to operate. But you can give those funds and do so from a heart that doesn't understand the gospel. And we could walk through a whole host of other examples, how you serve, what you spend your time doing. I mean, they're just endless because every area of our life, again, is, is, a, is a moment of intersection between what we believe the scriptures to teach about the gospel, and how our actions are demonstrating those beliefs. And Paul says the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed, that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What is at play here is that the gospel would so consume our focus 
and our attention as believers that the aim and desire of our lives is to walk and live in obedience before the Lord. So what do we do? Let's just try to maybe have some action steps for us. Here's what I would submit are some ways for us to take away. For the next month, read Romans 6, 7, and 8 exclusively. Yes, I realize I'm asking you to set aside your normal time in God's Word. Take a chapter a day, take three chapters every day, a chapter and a half. I mean, however you do it, if you take a chapter a day, you're going to read through those three chapters ten times. If you take all three each day, it's going to be thirty. There perhaps is not a better, more concise section of the scriptures that deals with the Christian life than Romans 6, 7, and 8. And if you look at both of the errors and, and really the, the antidote for them that came from Romans, the first quotation was from Romans 6, verse 2. And the second one had the first and very last verse of Romans chapter 8. These are perhaps the most important three chapters in regards to the Christian life in the New Testament. And that's a place to start as you begin to focus yourself on the gospel. We need to focus ourselves on the gospel and we need to figure out what is keeping our focus from the gospel. What's taken our eyes and shifting them away? What's taken our hearts and shifting them away? If the gospel is what's trustworthy, if that's what's to be insisted upon emphatically, and that's where the chief motivation for you and I to live obedient lives in in holiness and godliness before the Lord, what's robbing our focus and attention? And there's a whole host of things that could fit under that. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 will be important for focusing yourself on the gospel, but at the very same time, there is work to be done in figuring out what is keeping your focus from the gospel. Thirdly, confess and repent of what is hindering you. What's hindering you? your obedience, what's hindering your focus on the gospel, confess and repent. And I'm going to ask you to make a stake in the ground and put a stake in the ground in regards to this. And beginning today and running through Wednesday morning by the double doors back here in our foyer, I will have a large black trash can. And as things become revealed to you that are hindering your focus and standing in the way of you being focused on the gospel and living a life that is worthy of the gospel, I'm going to ask you to come back and put that in the trash can. 
For those of you that go to work early and maybe drive considerable distances, I commit to you to having those doors unlocked at 6 a.m. the next three mornings. So that if you need to swing in here before you head down wherever it is you go, you can find the trash can available. Doors will be open Monday and Tuesday from 6 to really the end of business hours, kind of that 4.30 range. And then on Wednesday morning, what I'll do is probably about 8, I'll set the trash can out. Trash company comes by at that point, and they'll just dump it. Some of you may need to be creative about what you put in there. Because if it's time, how do you quantify that into like an object that you... I mean, maybe you have a cheap clock at home that you're just going to dump in. I mean, if it's money, can you put it in a duffel bag with like a sign that says, please deposit me? That would be all. You may need to just be creative about what it is that you do. Some of you have CDs. You've got magazines. You've got computer stuff. You've got all sorts of things that, if you're just honest with yourself, are robbing your focus on the gospel. You need to confess and repent of it. And I'm asking you to to put a stake in the ground and drive back here and say, I'm done with this. I'm dumping it in. And lastly, begin to figure out what it looks like to devote yourselves to good works. Begin figuring out what it looks like to devote yourselves to good works. This hinges from a focus on the gospel. You can't figure out the last step without going through the first one. But there's work to do with the last one as well. And so that's where we'll end in many ways this morning. And the band will lead us through a song that will take our focus and attention and place it on the gospel. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And so I invite you to stand as they come and lead us. And after they will done, I will pray. And then we will shift gears a little bit. But would you stand as they lead us, please?